Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Ambition knows no gender nor does a passion for leadership and challenging work. But what if your youth might stand in the way? Well, if you're Elizabeth Ames, you check out the barriers, build your networks, and take a wild flying leap to the other side. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk. I'm Virginia Halsiger. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, have I got a guest for you? I think you're really going to enjoy this chat. I certainly did. In fact, our next guest has given me some golden lines that have gone straight to my best quotes of 2021 list. Let's see if you can pick them. It's a big broad chat that ranges over a stunning career pathway from foreign affairs to politics to gender equality. We discuss female imposter syndrome, the art of networking, and finally, what it's like as an Australian citizen to be locked out of your own country. Elizabeth Ames was born and educated in Melbourne. By her mid-twenties, she was working at the Australian Embassy in Rome, and now, in her mid-thirties, she's living and thriving in London. She's a highly sought-after public affairs and policy strategist who has considerable expertise in trade and investment policy, diplomacy 
and UK-Australia relations. Her brief bio is uh, so eye-watering, I'm too intimidated to read the long version. So here's the short version. She has served as Executive Director of the Australia-UK Chamber of Commerce and she's Chair of the Menzies Australia Institute at King's College London and a Director of the Britain-Australia Society. Most recently, this energetic go-getter took on the role of Chief Operating Officer at a London-based organisation called Atalanta. And this is where Elizabeth caught my eye. Atalanta is doing fascinating work around the world to amplify the voices and political representation of women. So naturally, we had a lot to talk about. But first, I wanted to hear why Elizabeth left Australia as a young woman and what led her eventually to the UK. And my apologies, just as we began our chat, Canberra began its pre-budget rumble with thunder and lightning pelting down. So the sound on my track is just a little disturbed. I want to start off by talking specifically about you. There's lots and lots of things we want to discuss, but you've got a fascinating background, I think, as a uh, an Australian woman brought up in Melbourne, went to school in Melbourne. Yep. You then moved to the UK and you have just had an incredibly stunning career. Listing all the things that you have done makes my head spin uh, and we'll get to your new position in a moment. But can you just take us back a little bit Brought up in Melbourne, what took you to the UK? So when I was 15, both my parents are are doctors and we went to China with them for a conference. And one of my mum's good friends from medical school was the head of the World Health Organization in China, which was an interesting role then, probably an even more interesting role now. And he took us out for dinner and he sent his car to collect us and his car had a flag on the front of it. And I remember thinking, what career do I need to get a car with a flag on the front? (laughs) That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. This is what I want in life. And my parents said, well, I guess you could be a diplomat. And I thought, okay, right, but what's a diplomat and how do you become one? And they said, oh, I think you need to just be really senior in politics and then you get appointed as the ambassador to London and that's how it works. And I thought, okay, that sounds right. So that that's quite a, you know, a long trajectory. And I had this idea so then from the age of 15, I really wanted to go and be a diplomat. And I went to university at the University of Melbourne. I did French and art history, uh, joined the debating society. And while I was there, learned a lot more about Australia's foreign policy, the fact that we had this organization called Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And that was how you became a diplomat. You applied for their graduate program. And so at the end of my undergrad, I applied to do a master's at the University of Sydney, finished my master's degree and applied for DFAT, thinking most people don't get in. I was only 23. I thought, I won't get in. It's fine. I'll apply and I won't get in. I'll move to London. I'll do some interesting work in London and then I'll apply in a few years when I'm ready. And, of course, when you don't think something will happen, it happens. I got into DFAT on my Mm. first attempt. So I was only 23 when I moved to Canberra to start training as a diplomat. Was that a big move for you at the time? I mean, I'd been living in Sydney for a couple of years before, so I hadn't lived at home for quite a while. But it was a big move in terms of sort of 
shifting my whole life, starting my career away from family and friends, meeting a new group of people. And I, I know you are passionate about the opportunities that Canberra brings as well. Um, it gets a bad rap sometimes in Australia, but I found it does, it does. Moving into this group of sort of ambitious young professionals interested in the same things that I was interested in was a real eye opener. It was sort of super fun and energizing to be around this group of people. And studying and learning and these opportunities to apply for postings overseas and think about what I wanted to do with my career. And while I was in DFAT, I did a lot of work on trade policies. I worked on the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations and I loved that. I really liked that it had an outcome. I found a lot of sort of day-to-day diplomacy, whilst important, is sort of building up longer-term relationships that can have a payoff at some point five, ten years down the track, whereas trade negotiations, you went into the room with an objective, you came out of it having achieved that objective or something else, and then you could go back to the minister and say, look what I've done today, look at the thing I've achieved. Hmm. Um, There's something interesting too, though, in the dynamics of that kind of negotiation. You said that you were interested in debating at school. Well, there you go. It's it's a similar kind of muscular thing, isn't it, where you're pointing towards an outcome, an end, and let's face it, a winning position. Yeah, yeah. I think I've always been very outcomes-oriented. Uh, certainly my parents would tell you I was very opinionated. Um, so uh-huh. I've always liked things where you bring people together, you have a conversation, but at the end of that conversation, there's something that you're doing with that. I like action. And so I applied for a posting. I went to Italy and lived in Italy for for three years working for the Australian government there. And at the end of my time in Italy, I thought, oh, I'm not quite ready to move back to Australia. I was born in the UK, I had a British passport. And I thought, I'll just move to London and see what happens. <laughs> Can I just ask you, at that point, when you first went to Italy, what sort of age would you have been? Were you in your uh, still in your 20s when you went to work for the Australian High Commission? Yeah, so the Australian Embassy in Rome, I was 27 when I started that job, which um, wow. looking back now seems really young. It, well, it is, really. Beautiful age, but it is young. And so you you went off to London um, around 30. Yep. Very quickly, you just had what, what strikes me as an incredible rise. Um, you, your roles, giving senior strategic advice in public affairs and policy and politics uh, has been quite extraordinary. Some of your roles, as I mentioned earlier, um, as Executive Director of the Australian United Kingdom Chamber of Commerce, um, your position as chair of the Menzies Australia Institute at King's College, and you've been the director of the Australia, uh, Britain Australia Society. These are all quite senior roles for someone so young. What, what propelled you forward so much? I've always had a really strong sense of self belief. I know in some circles it's fashionable to talk about imposter syndrome and think about the ways you don't fit in. And I don't know whether it's because of the family I grew up in or the school I went to, but I never had that sense that I didn't belong or that I couldn't do something. And so I would look at these organisations and think, oh, I've got some good ideas. I should be part of that or I should apply to run that. I think I'd be a good, I think I'd be good at running that. And so it was a similar sort of thing. I turned up in London. I like to say I turned up in London at 31, homeless and unemployed. And I went around to all of the big communications agencies and essentially said, I think you should hire me. And one of them did, which was great. And then I very consciously went about building a network. I've been really I've really benefited from having supportive networks, particularly of women, but more broadly of sort of decision makers, policy makers, and people from really different backgrounds. And so 
when I moved to London, I thought, what I need to do now is build a network. I need to go and meet interesting people and see what they're doing and connect them with each other. And that's where opportunity lives. Opportunity lives in introducing people and meeting them. Can I just ask you, because I know a lot of our listeners will be really interested in that point, how did you go about doing that? When, when you knew, quite rightly, that you need to build networks, what, what did you do? I mean, essentially, I said yes to every invitation. I turned up to anything. I went to events. I would set myself a goal of going to an event and handing out, you know, five business cards or 10 business cards. I it's, <laughs> it's become a joke amongst my friends, but I had personal business cards made. So they had my name, my <laughs> personal email address and my personal phone number on them. So that if I met someone I thought was interesting, I could give them my personal details and say, this is what I like doing. This is what I'm interested in. Can we be in touch? Can we have a coffee? And people And would you well. follow up? Yes. Yeah. I find yeah. people respond really well. If you go to someone and you're open and you're curious and you are really interested in who they are and what they do, people respond incredibly well to that. You don't go into the interaction thinking, oh, I need to get this particular thing out of it. You go into it thinking, this mm. person's interesting. I'd love to learn about how they got to where they are. And then during that conversation, you might think, oh, actually, I have someone else you would like to meet that would be useful for you. And all my best mm. bosses, all the best people I've worked with have been people that have had broad networks that they're incredibly generous with, that they introduce people to and across the network. And they're creative and they're successful because of because of that synergy, which is, you know, sort of terrible business word. <laughs> I find it um, fascinating to hear you say that because I know, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a networker too, but for a long time, particularly when I was young, I always felt very awkward about the idea of asking people for their time when I had no objective other than my curiosity. When, if it, As a journalist, it was, of course, easier because I could be milking them for potential story information or ideas, but just to do it for myself – which often, often I really was, um, I always felt, uh, I don't know, a little, a little awkward if, if there was no, nothing I was offering back, in other words. Yeah. But that, that didn't bother you? No, I think partly I looked around at the, the successful young men I knew and none of them felt awkward about asking people for time and none of them felt awkward about asking for mentors or putting themselves forward for things. And I thought, well, I'm at least as good as they are, so I should just do this as well. I don't. I think you don't pester people. If someone says, sorry, I can't or I'm too busy or that's not quite right for me, you don't follow up and keep asking them for something. But if you go into it and you're clear that you think it will be an interesting conversation and you have something to bring as well, and by building that network you do have something to bring, I don't think it's a. It's not an imposition. You've had some amazing roles, as as I've said. What perhaps has been the hardest, the hardest, or the most challenging position you you have found yourself into to date? I think at the end of my time in the embassy in Rome, I knew I didn't want to go back to Canberra, but I particularly knew I didn't want to stay in the foreign service. Um, there had been some problems with bullying at the at the embassy. I hadn't felt as though the foreign service had really done a good job of protecting me or protecting some of the other staff from some of that. And I also looked ahead at my career in the foreign service and thought, I can't see myself doing that anymore. And it was really hard to admit to myself and to admit to my family and friends that this thing I'd wanted to be for so long, you know, I'd always wanted to be a diplomat, that was who I was, was really hard to admit that that wasn't right for me anymore. And I felt particularly my father had been really proud when I'd gotten into to DFAT and was really proud of mm. telling people his daughter was a diplomat and having to 
call him up on on Skype and say, you know, Dad, I don't, I don't think this is for me anymore. I don't think I can do this. That was a really difficult decision, even though I knew it was the right one for me. Doing that publicly and, and admitting that, in some respects, I'd failed at this thing I wanted to be. And looking back on it now, I hadn't failed. The system had failed me, but that was a, a really difficult point. It felt like a failure at the time, did it? Yeah. And so when you went to London and did the rounds of, of communications um, companies, that was a, quite a turn, quite a change in direction, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and it was, you know, I took six months off between jobs. I went travelling around the world in, in a way that seems impossible at the moment. You know, I went mm. to – and I went to – mad places. I went to Iran and Pakistan and Zimbabwe and East Timor and all these places where friends of mine were on posting as diplomats and I could stay with them and learn about these amazing countries so I wouldn't get a chance to visit. But I always knew I wanted to move to London at the end of it. I think it was useful to have a, a sort of crystallizing goal. And I, while I was traveling, I thought about what I liked doing. And I thought, I like connecting people. I like talking to people. I like thinking about how you frame an issue and frame a problem, going back to debating. I really like talking things through and thinking about the most successful way to explain something. And what is that? Well, that sort of strategic communications. And and I liked, the thing I liked about the trade negotiations was I liked the connecting of business and sort of policymakers and and civil servants. And then I liked the sort of third sector, you know, both media, but also lobby groups and industry. And so that sort of Liking that nexus, that connection between those three areas, I thought, well, going into public affairs and, and policy, but in a communications role, that, that sounded like the right fit, and it was. So, and, and as I say, you sort of had a, I guess, a meteoric rise very quickly. In, when, when you became the executive director, for example, of the Australian United Kingdom's Chamber of Commerce, was that was that particularly challenging again because you're relatively young, female, and I would have thought that's a fairly blokey kind of world. It it is. I was very lucky in some ways. So that role was a maternity cover, and the the woman I was covering for was also, you know, a woman in her early thirties um, who was taking a year off, uh, supported by her board and her chairman to to have the baby. And the chairman of that organisation, a man called Dick Porter, who's an Australian who founded STA Travel and has lived in the UK for a very long time. Dick is one of the biggest feminists I know. I don't know if he would see himself that way, but he consistently hires women in their early 30s and backs them and puts them into senior roles. And they go off and have babies and they come back and he supports that. And having someone at that level who proactively uses his position to promote women at that stage of their careers and identify them and really back them to the hilt, I think is in some respects quite unusual. And I feel unbelievably lucky mm. that that I met Dick and that that he supported me in that role and then supported me when I, you know, when Catherine came back and finished her maternity leave, that he then supported me in, in what I wanted to do next. And it was important to me taking that senior role as a maternity cover was really important to me to model to the companies, you know, there were 300 companies that were members of the chamber, really seen, you know, all the big Australian banks, the mining companies, the airlines, really important to me that we modelled that senior women could take maternity leave and could find Mm. someone to replace them at their level, that that would be successful for the organisation and we would hand back and setting, you know, just as a point of sort of feminism, personal feminism, modelling that and demonstrating that and being part of that was really important to me. 
When you have taken on these roles, the leadership roles, uh, another one being the chair of the Menzies Australia Institute at King's College, have there been times, though, when you've kind of pinched yourself and thought, what am I doing here? How how did I get here? And, And how do I actually become this person, the chair or the executive director? Yeah, the, the Menzies one, I think, in in particular, for me, I really had to be encouraged. I was on the board. I'd been invited onto the board by John Douth, who was a, um, a former high commissioner, uh, Australian high commissioner in the UK, who knew me and, you know, wanted to bring some younger people onto the board and, and engage the younger Australian community with what the Menzies was doing. And when he stepped down and they were looking for a chair, I thought one of the other longer serving board members would step up and none of them did. And I sort of said to a couple of the people on the board, oh, well, maybe I guess I, I could do the chair role, but I'm not sure I'm ready. And they were really encouraging um, and, and supportive and said, no, you should step up. I think that's a great role. I think you'll be really energetic and you'll bring something new. So having having other people back you when you don't back yourself is also helpful. Mm, indeed. Did you have to find your own voice in a role like that or um, did you feel like you were modelling yourself on someone else or was it very much a an experience of I will be just who I am and see how this goes? I th- I'm not very good at not being myself. Uh, I've never... <laughs> That's probably a jolly good thing. I've never, I've never been great. I mean, there, you will, and, and I, I think every professional, but certainly every professional woman would say this, you have parts of your personality and parts of yourself that you bring out more in different roles. And so I, you know, the way I am with my friends over a glass of wine is probably a bit different to the way I am when I'm running the Menzies. But I knew I had seen successful organisations. I knew I'd been in the room with with senior people running these sorts of things. I'd seen it in action. And I I knew enough of what I had seen that had worked. And also, I always think it's useful to learn from things you've seen that you think don't work. And so Mm. to think about, well, what looks good in an academic context, but also how do these academic institutions link themselves back with business, link themselves back with the community of Australians in the UK and that was where I saw that I could bring something new to the role, that I could really think about how we linked back with the younger Australians with, I mean, I, I'm probably not that young anymore, but but with that community that's here that isn't always part of the sort of the scene around the High Commission or isn't always sort of engaged with, with these sort of more august cultural institutions because they have something to bring as well and they're really important to that bilateral relationship. So, again, coming back to this idea of networking and community, bringing that community into a space where they hadn't been before. I'm interested to know what sort of leader you think you are. I mean, I love, I love that line that you're not very good at not, at not being yourself. I think it's beautiful. But uh, we've been doing a lot of talking on Broad Talk, particularly last year, of course, about uh, leadership and what I – think is an emerging um, feminization of leadership that is finally being appreciated in a way that it hasn't been before. And we've seen this through COVID um, with global women leaders and, you know, you, you and I know exactly who they are, but those who've really stood out because of their style. Uh, and so we're talking a lot more about styles of leadership. And, I, and I'm not, I don't mean traits, but rather styles. How, what would you say is your style of leadership? Are you very collaborative? Are you 
you very uh, insistent on on bringing everyone with you, or are there times when you will be quite hierarchical because you see a need? I think you can be both. I remember reading years and years ago before I sort of thought about, I think probably when I was still a diplomat, so before I thought about running companies and, and being a leader in business myself, about the way Amazon did things, which is they would disagree, then agree. So you could have a big internal conversation where you would thrash out all the points of view and everyone would have their say and then the majority would make the decision and then everyone in that room would agree that that was what they would agree with outside the room even if inside the room they'd hold a different position and I really mm. loved that idea that and and that for me brought together this idea of the collaboration of the inclusiveness but also of the need to make decisions and implement them. So you can have, you can be an inclusive leader, but if you spend your whole time talking and nothing ever gets done, then you're not a leader and it's not mm. useful. So this idea that you have the conversations, again, you have the debate internally, and then you come to a decision and you all agree to act on that and, and do and go forward with the action that to me is is what's really important about being a good leader. And I guess what's really important in all of that too is getting those who work with you to buy in to the decision once once the decision has been made, whether it suits them or not, to actually have some kind of ownership of it and agreement around that. Yeah, and I think having having the conversation helps people to understand where you're coming from and to understand why a decision's been made. If they feel as though they've been part of the process, their views have been heard, mm -hmm. even if they don't necessarily agree with the decision, they can understand how you've got there and they're better able to explain it to others and, and to support it. And I think it's one of the things actually we're talking about, if you want to transition onto thinking about, about politics and, and doing politics well, it's one of the things I think Ireland has done unbelievably well with these citizens' assemblies, you know, the citizens' assembly around Fantastic abortion reform. Mm. And again, it's this mm. idea that you bring disparate people together, you form a network, you form a community of people that didn't know each other, you ask them to consider hard ideas, they understand each other's point of view, and then together they come up with a solution that is the best one for the majority of people. And that is how, that's what good leadership to me looks like, whether it's political or in business. Mm -hmm. And we have for too long thought that successful leadership is kind of, you know, usually a bloke running ahead and forcing people to kind of sprint to keep up. Whereas actually having moving, you can't sit still, but moving at a slower pace and explaining to people what you're doing and why you're doing it and bringing them along results in much more systemic change. Those participatory processes, particularly citizen juries, are something I'm absolutely fascinated by. And in fact, um, here in Australia, at the University of Canberra, we have this wonderful world-leading group, the Centre for Deliberative Democracy, that uh, runs citizens' assemblies and citizen juries and has is, is done some stunning international work as well. They also are involved with the Irish team and the Gender Equality Citizens' Assembly, which is something I really want to, to bring to Australia or see happen in Australia. You and I might have to talk more about that. But I want to, I want to move it on to your current role at Atlanta, uh, Atlanta as the, the COO. Yes. Because the work that you're doing there and that the organization does is quite stunning. But we're going to just break for a moment for a short ad break. We'll be back in just a tick. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back, Elizabeth. I want to talk to you about Atlanta. Tell us, what is this extraordinary organization? So I joined Atalanta in at the start of October last year and we were founded by an American woman called Eva Barboni, who's our CEO. She founded the company four years ago and she had a background in political communications and particularly political campaigns working in the States, but then working interestingly across Europe and particularly in Africa. And she had helped two different American companies set up operations in the UK. She'd been in the UK for about, she'd been here for about 10 years now. And she looked around, and I think a bit like I did in, in the diplomatic service, I think, she looked around and thought, the more senior I get, the less women there seem to be. And also, we don't seem to be running campaigns for women candidates either, that women don't enter politics. And then when they do, they don't get the same level of professional support that men get. And she thought, that's not great. And then she realized that she could actually fix that, that she could found her own company, that she'd done it twice for two different men. Why shouldn't she do it for herself? And I was looking for a new job. I'd been doing some consulting work. I was looking for a new job last year in the middle of the pandemic, thought, oh God, I'm never going to find the right thing. And I read this job ad. And at the time, Eva thought she was looking for a chief of staff. And I thought, oh no, I don't want to be a chief of staff. I, you know, I really want to kind of be a leader in this company. But I read about Eva, I read about the company. I thought, this is, this is my dream organization. Someone's had this idea and they've put it into practice mm. and this is exactly what I care about. So in the spirit of not really thinking that I can't do things, I applied for the job. My cover letter essentially said, I'm the person you're looking for. I'm right for this job. I look forward to my interview. <laughs> but I, but I, I don't want it to be the chief of staff. I want to be the COO, the chief operating officer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I marched, I marched into Good my first you. interview and I said, great, I've got all these ideas for your company. Here's how we can grow it. Here's what we hmm. need to focus on. But by the way, you'll need to pay me a little bit more and I need a different title and I want to be a leader alongside you. And Eva, thankfully, um, <laughs> thought that was a good idea. And she's now, you know, it's, it's funny to say this about someone that you have hardly met because we've worked, you know, England's been in a really strict lockdown for most of the past year. So Eva and I have only met in person a handful of times, but you know, my, uh, my partner would say we talk to each other all day, every day, which we do. And she's become one of my, not just you know the person I work with and, and my business partner, but one of my best friends over here. And it's been amazing to build a company alongside a woman who you respect and admire and who you get along with. And I think one of the secrets to the way we work together so well is we approach problems 
in a really similar way. We, we think similarly, but we often come to different outcomes. And that is a really good thing for us as a company is to have sort of the two of us understanding how the other one will approach something and then working out what we think the best the best approach is so when I joined well yeah yeah when, when I joined we were a company of seven uh, we're now 17 um, so we've had that growth wow that was yeah. a, that was a quick growth <laughs> it was and it, it's because the demand is there you know more women are running for politics, more organisations are realising that they need to do to do more to support women in the workplace. And we say, you know, we work from the top down and the bottom up. So we don't just help run campaigns for women political leaders. We also work with organisations working on things like climate change, childhood nutrition, education, things that COVID, things that impact women and girls more. So you can't run for politics if you haven't had an education and you can't get an education if you haven't been fed. So all of these things that, that intersect to mean that you don't have the women leaders that you should, you, you need to start at the ground and make sure that girls are educated, that girls are fed, that girls stay in school. You know, you spoke to those amazing women who started the, the menstrual products, social enterprise, you know. That, no, taboo, yeah. yeah. That, that, that girls have access to menstrual products so they continue going to school and they don't get pulled out. So all of that is important. You can't just say, oh, we're going to work at the pointy end where these amazing women come out and want to run for leadership if you don't help create mm. the pipeline. I want to drill down on that, uh, but also I'll just make mention too that we have a wonderful organisation here in Australia called Women for Election, and I've also interviewed Alicia Heath, who's the CEO of that on Broad Talk, who has spoken about similar things, but they are focused specifically on teaching women um, the ins and outs of running a campaign, which is so, so useful. But what Atlanta is doing is, is, as you say, much broader. It's a big, it's a big mission. It's a really big mission, and I know you work around the world as well, around the globe. Which, for a small organisation, it's incredible the amount that you do do. But before we talk about the global stuff, let's just talk about the UK because the UK has some interesting parallels with Australia when it comes to women in politics. And I know in the last election in the UK in 2019. Uh, a lot of women who were standing um, or who held seats were deciding not to stand because they were um, fed up effectively with harassment and some pretty violent harassment too that they were receiving uh, as from constituents. And therefore it has been a, a, a tough call to get women into parliament like it has been in Australia. And we have really good reason for women not wanting to stand in Australia either. In fact, we've just had a Liberal uh, member of, of, of government, Nicole Flint, pull out for exactly those sorts of reasons that she was just fed up with the harassment she was getting in her own electorate um, and some pretty vile stuff as well. So how do you see it playing out in the UK right at the moment in terms of women and getting more women into politics and active in Parliament? It's a huge problem. Uh, we actually had a talk in our company a couple of months ago from Heidi Allen, who was one of those uh, female Tory MPs who left the Tory party due to their stance on Brexit and helped to found this sort of centrist party that didn't do very well and then moved across the Lib Dems, uh, the Liberal Democrats here, which is a sort of, you know, the third party in the UK, a bit like um, the Democrats used to be in Australia. And talking she came and talked to us she's left politics now she came and spoke to us about the abuse she'd received you know the fact that she had to have panic alarms set up at her house and police mm. watching her kids because people were making threats against her whole family and 
we we work with women in countries all over the world, women candidates. You know, we're helping to run a training program for women candidates in Lebanon at the moment, and they talk about the the abuse and the threat of violence. And it was really upsetting to me to think that in the UK, where we're supposedly you know much further ahead in gender equality, we have more women in parliament, we we have these structures in place that women are facing the exact same issues and the exact same threats to their lives and their livelihoods and that for being a woman who stands up for what you believe in, in public, in politics, trying to make a difference for your community, that you can have that level of, of abuse was really shocking and, and really upsetting. I think there are a couple of things that need to be done. One is that, and this is you know, applies in Australia equally, is that online abuse needs to be taken more seriously online platforms need to do more to regulate and prevent hate speech. And hate speech isn't just, you know, hate speech against people's religion or people's background or people's race. It's also about gender and recognising the hugely disproportionate impact that hate speech on online platforms has on women, that so much more of it is directed against women. You know, in Australia, Clementine Ford has spoken out amazingly about some of the things that that she's experienced online and and the way in which that's unacceptable and the sorts of things people say. And that people say when they think they can get away with it and they think they can get away with it because no one prevents it, no one regulates it, no one takes these people offline. How do you think that can play out though? I mean, obviously there is a need for tougher regulation, but how? Yeah, a lot of it is about the platforms taking ownership of the sort of speech that is on online there needs to be an, a, you know, essentially a zero strikes policy. You don't get to tweet that someone, you know, I won't use language for a family podcast, but some of the things they'll say about, you know, effing this and c word that and, you know, mm. rape and murder threats. If you tweet something like that at someone, you should be deplatformed. It shouldn't take doing that repeatedly to a level of harassment for you to be knocked off the platform. It should mm. be, we have a zero policy on this, that's it, you don't mm. get to be online. And that's not mm. removing someone's right to speak. They can still speak in public. It's removing their platform, which is very different. It's interesting because whilst social media and Twitter in particular, of course, can be um, uh, very damaging and f- f- for women and, and also shatter a lot of women's confidence too, it also can be very powerful. And I know that in the campaigning that Atlanta does in supporting women to get into um, political office, you've really used digital um, campaigning in a very positive way. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's 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 a, a kind of the contradiction in terms of some of what we do is that we have to equip our candidates for the abuse online, but we also have to say to them, you need to be better online than any of the other candidates. You know, in some ways, a lot of women politicians, particularly in their first campaigns, are, they're insurgent politicians, you know, people like Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez in the US coming from nowhere and really kind of Mm. using platforms in interesting ways. You know, she's amazing on Mm. things like Snapchat and TikTok Mm. and the older white Mm. men in the US Congress are not using those platforms and she's using them effectively. So it's about working with candidates to find their own credible voice. Uh, just on that, with AOC herself, she has, uh, and I thoroughly agree with you, she's using those platforms extremely well, but there's something else too about her communications, and, and it's a communication strategist and expert, I'm sure you'd pick up on this. Her language and her approach is very straightforward, isn't it? It's very unspun. Yeah. And that seems to be what what what's what makes it so magical. And I'm really hopeful. You know, we think about 
former, you know, former female politicians, people like Hillary Clinton, people like Julia Gillard, who felt really guarded in the way they spoke and really, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. they are both personal heroes of mine. They're both amazing. I met Julia Gillard a couple of times. I think she, what she achieved was unbelievable, particularly given the, the circumstances in which she was operating. But Neither but she them. did struggle with media presentation it's, a huge amount. Exactly. And they didn't feel like they yeah. could be their true selves or their full self or their real self in public because that had been almost sort of coached out of them. And mm. I am really hopeful we're at a point now where in the same way that men have often gotten to where they are by being themselves, that women are being able to be their full selves in public that that is, they can see that that's an effective campaign strategy, that if you come out and say, this is what I believe in, this is what I've experienced, here's my life story, here's why I'm motivated to do what I'm doing, that that actually will be mm. effective and that people really respond to that level of honesty and, you know, we talk a lot about mm. authenticity in communications and it's it's much harder to be someone that you're not and so you want to work mm. with candidates for them to distill the parts of their story that will speak to people and will speak to the campaign and will speak to the you know coalitions they need to build to get elected but you also want that to be very much who they are and coming from a place of of honesty and experience so do you see this perhaps this move towards a greater appreciation of and I'll use the word authenticity but real stories realness as as a great opportunity for women that 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 perhaps hasn't been untapped um, because men tend not to do it yeah and also I think we are making more space for women's conversations and women's experiences. You know, think about the marches that happened in mm. Australia recently. I know before we started taping, you and of I course. were talking about the awful case of Sarah Everard here in the UK, which started again a conversation for women's talking about, oh, yeah, when I go home, I always take the well-lit streets. I always call someone mm. to talk to on my walk home because it's dark and it's scary. And so having those conversations in public and people listening potentially for the first time mm. to these experiences and understanding the way in which women have curtailed their lives and, and shaped the way they move through public space in order to feel safer or to give themselves the illusion of safety, that making space for those conversations, I think, helps open up a space for broader conversations about who these women are, what they want, what you want as an individual and what that means for your community. Elizabeth, it's quite interesting to see the parallels again between Australia and the UK in terms of where we're at in the discussion at the moment, the public conversation, the discourse around women and um, the very things you're talking about, public safety, violence against women. But there's so many parallels. It's almost as if it's all happening at the same time. I'm often surprised when I read British media how if you took out the UK and put in Australia, it's the same stuff. We're saying the same things. We're at the same place. And we're not the only ones. I mean, I'm seeing this around the world. We're seeing it in South America as well. We're seeing it in the US as well. What do you think that's about? Is it a zeitgeist or is it, is it just time? I mean, I think those links go back really far. If you think about your know, South Australia was the first place in the world to give women not only the right to vote but also to stand for parliament. And women from South Australia travelled to the UK to support the suffragettes in their fight mm. for the vote um, you know, this is back in the early 1900s and, and an Australian woman mm. chained herself to the railings in Parliament in the UK. Indeed. She was the first woman, I believe, to speak out. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, sorry, to be, well, actually to be heard or call out across the chamber in the way that she did. Muriel Matters, yeah. yeah. Um, and so those links are there. And I think 
one of the benefits of social media and particularly potentially the last year where we've all had to find new ways of connecting and and I know I've spoken to friends and family in Australia more over the last year than ever before because we've all been stuck inside and we've all had to find ways to talk to each other. So building those communities and learning from each other's experiences has always been unbelievably powerful for for women and particularly for sort of for building up the sort of feminist movement and I think we're beginning to see women make those connections and connect those dots in terms of how what they're doing in public protest, what they're doing talking to each other can become political. So if, you know, the old the old slogan of the personal is political might actually be, be coming into focus and, and being used effectively to run campaigns and to get women into these positions of leadership. Well, it's certainly a slogan that we're hearing a lot more of these days and people are tending to to use it quite proudly now rather than shrink from it. Elizabeth, there's so much I could talk to you about um, for hours upon hours, but we're running out of time. I, I want to come back to to you. You mentioned just then that you've spoke, been speaking to your family perhaps more than, than ever over the last year and understandably. You haven't been back to Australia for a good year and a half or so. How does that feel, being not able to come home to see your parents in Melbourne? It's really hard. It's not just my parents. My sister has young children and and when I was last home, my niece was four weeks old and she's now one and a half and walking and talking. And and that is something, you know, I've tweeted about a lot. I am really passionate about the feeling as an Australian overseas that your country doesn't welcome you anymore and doesn't want you back and doesn't value your experience. You know, at the start of the pandemic, my partner, he's British, we had a serious conversation about, is now the time to move back to Australia? Is this the right time for us to move our lives back to Australia? And it wasn't the right time. And I'm really glad we stayed. And I I love the life that I'm building here. But that conversation about, is it the right time to move back to Australia feels further away than ever now, because I can't recognise a country that won't let its citizens back in, that regards any Australian who built a life overseas and, and did that as a proud Australian, as someone who could be diseased, who could be a threat to the country, rather than saying your experiences are valuable, the things you've been doing overseas are valuable, and we will, of course, bring you back and protect you and, and help keep you safe. That, to me, is is really difficult. Does it feel like Australia's kind of turned on you? Not individuals, but certainly the way the conversation proceeds. In Australia, it feels as though we're not welcome. And it feels as though, you know, people say, oh, well, why didn't you come back 12 months ago, 18 months ago, without understanding Mm. that people have built Mm. whole lives? You know, I've been in the UK five and a half years now. You can't pack that up in two weeks and jump on a plane home without knowing what else Mm. is going to happen. And so, and people's circumstances change. You know, I've been lucky. My parents are still reasonably young. They're healthy. The rest of my family has been been healthy and, and fine. But the thought that if something happened, I almost certainly couldn't get back. That is harder to deal with. And the the lack of sympathy, you know, you had the WA Premier saying the other day, oh, well, a funeral is not a good reason to go overseas. And I thought, well, if a funeral is not a good reason to go overseas, then what? Then what is? Are you just mm. saying that this country mm. that built itself on welcoming people from overseas and also sending them back out to talk about what Australia did and who Australians were, if you're saying that that's not part of the national DNA anymore, then what is the country you're building? Because I think Australia needs to have 
an honest and open conversation about the country they want to be if it's not the country they were. That is so beautifully put. Look, thank you so much. And it's it, it breaks my heart to think that people um, such as yourself that also have given so much to Australia and work so hard to build relations between Australia and other nations, and in your case very much the UK, breaks my heart to think that you feel cut off in this way. I really, it really is awful. And I hope that soon you do get home to see your family and uh, your parents and indeed your your tiny little niece. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the time that you've given me. I really do appreciate it. And as I say, there's so much more we could talk about. But uh, I will let you go and get on with your uh, your day. And it's late at night here, so I must uh, say goodnight too. But thank you so much for joining Broad Talk. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's always hard to end a broad talk conversation because there's always so much more to discuss. So did you find a few quotable quotes in that? I did. My favourite was Elizabeth's line that spins imposter syndrome on its head when she said, I'm not very good at not being myself. (laughs) I've got to say, I'm with her on that. Try as I might to be someone else. It just never works. What about you? I really love hearing your thoughts and your comments and feedback. Please do keep it coming. And thank you so much for all those lovely warm words of encouragement. You can drop us a line anytime on the Broad Talk Facebook page or join our growing community of Broad Talkers. Just click to join the Facebook group, The Round Table, and Martin and I will throw open the doors to let you in. And yes, you can find me most days on Twitter at Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S, and I also hang out at Talk Broad. My big thanks to Martin Pierce, the WBPP, world's best podcast producer. Without him, you and I wouldn't be having this chat. Now, next week is our last podcast for this series, and it's going to be something a little different, a little experimental. I've got to say I'm a little bit nervous about it. We're going to take a few weeks break and then we're gearing up for Series 3, which is going to have a different focus, something rather challenging. So please do stay tuned for that. I think you'll enjoy it. If you haven't clicked subscribe please do so now. That way you're not going to miss an episode. And while you're at it, please tell everyone you know to subscribe to Broad Talk. We need every single click, apparently. And if you like what we're doing, please leave a rating and a review. It helps in the podcast world. Gosh, there are lots of pleasers there, aren't there? Well, I'm here to please. But for now, until next time, happy chatting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.